You know, it occurred to me as we were singing that, uh, that I've been asked the same question twice in the last couple of days, once last Thursday night and then once this morning. And uh, the question was, okay, uh, what do you feel like God is showing you in this Holy Week? And this is not part of my message, by the way. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe the Lord actually wants me to think about that, you know, because I'm busy doing other things. And so I haven't really given that a lot of thought. And as I've begun to digest that very little time that I've given it this morning, you know, I think that maybe what the Lord is showing me is that though there is darkness in this life, in Christ there's light. That though there is despair in this life, that in Christ there's hope, that though there is death in Christ there's life. It's funny, I have people come to me sometimes. I've actually had people say this, so don't say it because then I'll laugh at you. But, but they've said, oh, you know, you're a pastor. What do you know of the real world? And I want to say to them, I see more of the real world in a week than you see in a decade. And though there is darkness, there's light. And though there is despair, there's hope. And though there is death, there's life. So the answer is, I need this message. And maybe you do too. One of the things we've been doing here at Rio this year is we've been studying through the life of this Jesus whom we claim and profess as Savior and Lord and hope to follow better through this study. And this morning, I want to continue that by introducing you to a couple of guys who despaired, who lost all hope, who saw death and no life, and who actually quit on Jesus, get this, on Easter. Now digest that for a second. Jesus Christ is God-made man, come into the world to live before God in behalf of man, the life that God demands of man. And that is a perfect life. Now, that's an attention-getter. And then beyond that, having lived that perfect life, to take upon himself all of the sin, all the imperfections, however you want to name it, whatever label you want to put on it, of all of those who would put their faith and trust in him, of his people and to lay down his life on a cross as a sacrifice for our sin that is accepted before the Father. Jesus has lived that life. Jesus has suffered and died that death. Jesus has been buried and laid stone-cold dead in the grave for three straight days, but on the day that these guys quit, he has gloriously come forth from the grave, by the way, exactly as he said he would. There's a reason they posted guards at the grave, guys. It wasn't a secret he made this claim, and yet these guys are done, finished. In fact, they're so done, they're actually leaving Jerusalem, and they're walking toward a town about seven miles away called Emmaus. So I don't know. I mean, if you're taking a casual stroll, two hours. And what makes it even more startling is that before they leave, they actually hear about the supposed resurrection of Jesus. In other words, they knew that some of the women from among the followers of Jesus had gone to the tomb on the morning of the resurrection. They'd gone there bringing burial spices, so clearly they're expecting to find a dead Jesus. But they find no Jesus. And then they talk to angels. Now, that's an eye roller for these two who leave, who tell them, as Matt read, you know, why do you seek the living among the dead? It's a chastening statement. You brought burial spices? This is resurrection day. What's the matter with you? Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. You know, just like he said that he would go back and tell the others. So they go back and tell the others. And these guys knew this as well. And some of the men ran to the tomb. Now, no angels, but 
No Jesus either. So the tomb is empty. Something at the very least, minimal level, incredibly fishy is going on. These guys are done. These guys are finished. These guys are walking away. Why? Because a dead Messiah, history has taught them, is a failed Messiah. Jesus is not the only guy to claim to be the Messiah. He's not the only guy to gather up a group of followers. He's not the only guy to make the headlines. And he's not the only one to die at the hands of the Romans. Here's how they knew that someone who claimed to be the Messiah was not the Messiah. The Romans killed them, and oftentimes a lot of their followers, which might explain to some degree why they're leaving. Follow? Wow. So a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah, and beyond that, this whole business about resurrection from the dead is the stuff of crazy people. So thank you, we're done. And off they go. But as they go, they're joined by a stranger. If you know the story, you know the stranger is Jesus, the risen Christ. They've quit on Him. He has not quit on them. I wonder if that applies to you today too. And He joins them for this walk, but they don't recognize Him. Why? Well, I mean, He's like the last person in the world they're expecting to actually see, isn't He? I mean, you know, again, He's dead at least as far as they know, and the stuff of resurrection is the stuff of crazy people, so... Police, But in addition to that, it seems as though Jesus conceals his identity from them for a time. And you wonder, why does he conceal his identity? I mean, doesn't he want them to know that he's risen from the dead? Yes. And he'll reveal himself before the story's done. But first, he wants to have a talk with them. And he wants to take them into the Old Testament, the Scriptures in that day. The only part of the Bible that had been completed for the New Testament was yet to be written at this point. And he wants to show them from the Bible why his resurrection is not the stuff of crazy people. In fact, why on the morning of his resurrection, instead of walking away, what they should have done is camped out at the gravesite and waited for him to come forth. Because it's in there, story after story after story after story. Jesus reasons with them and with us from the Bible. Now, why is that? Well, because as Paul tells us in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by science. It's not what he says. All right, faith comes by hearing and hearing by logic. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by reason. Faith comes by hearing, and faith is what he's looking for in them and us. It's what he wants to inspire. That's what saves and claims them, or in their case, reclaims them. may be true for you too. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of Christ. It comes by the Word of God. It comes through the Scriptures. God is the God of science. God is the God of logic. God is the God of reason. And He is the God of the Bible who has ordained that it is through His Word that He calls us to Himself. And so as they go, we read this. Jesus comes to them and He says, hey, what are you guys talking about? (laughs) And they look at him like he's got to be out of his mind. I mean, where have you been? You've been in Jerusalem. You're coming from Jerusalem with us. How can you not know what we're talking about? We're talking about, rewind the tape a little bit, Jesus of Nazareth. We're talking about this guy who was this amazing teacher, this guy who who spoke with an authority that nobody else has ever spoken with, this man who performed the kind of miracles that only God can perform. Blind see, deaf hear, lame walk, paralyzed, not anymore, dead, raised, They had a lot of reason to believe in this Christ, to follow this Christ, to put all of their hope in this Christ. We thought he was the Messiah, they tell, ironically, Jesus himself. But 
The chief priests had him arrested and bound, falsely charged, falsely tried, falsely convicted, beaten, abused, handed over to the Romans who scourged him, who mocked him, who tortured him, and who placed upon him the wood that he would then be laid down upon and nailed to and lifted up upon where he would shed his blood unto death. And they forced him to carry that wood up the hill upon which he would be sacrificed. See, we thought he was the Messiah, but, you know, a dead Messiah is a failed Messiah. And truth is, this resurrection stuff that we've heard about this morning is like, I mean, that's the stuff of crazy people. And so listen to what Jesus says to these guys. Jesus is never going to be charged with being, I think, overly subtle. Luke 24, verse 25, and Jesus said to them, oh, foolish ones. Like you almost wince when you read some of the things that he says. It's like, really? Wow. Not, hey, you know what? Maybe we should think about it from another perspective. Have you ever, no, just you foolish ones. What is he saying? He's saying, listen, it is foolish if you actually understand the Bible for you to be walking away today. It is foolish if you actually understand these stories for you not to have anticipated the resurrection. It is foolish for you to think that it's foolish to believe in the resurrection. Indeed, it is foolish not to believe in the resurrection if you understand the Scriptures. He says, oh, foolish ones and faithless too and slow of heart to believe, he says, all that the prophets have spoken. But where? Well, we've covered it in the Old Testament. And then he says, was it not necessary, meaning according to all of these stories, all of these prophecies, all of these teachings that these guys and many of us here today grew up knowing from Sunday school, was it not necessary that the Christ, the true Messiah, should suffer all these things that you've just told me about? Betrayal, beatings, wood, walking up a hill, sacrifice unto death, and then to enter into His glory, that is to say, to be raised from the dead on the third day. And then it says, now don't miss this, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them during this two-hour, seven-mile walk all, and all the Scriptures, the things concerning Himself. That is to say, He walks them through these stories and says, don't you see how this points to me? Don't you see how this points to me? Don't you see how... This points to me, don't you see life, death, burial, and resurrection all the way through? Don't you see that with Adam? Don't you see that with Noah? Don't you see that with Abraham and his sacrifice of Isaac? Do you see it? Because it prepares your heart to look for the one who would, in fact, live, suffer, die, be buried, and on the third day, be raised. And I want to consider that story for a second. Think about it. I mean, just generally speaking for a second, it's the story about a father who sacrifices his son. Let's read it. Genesis 22. Beginning in verse 1, I can hear the Lord saying, you know, hey, consider this one. Moses, who's writing, says, after these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he, Abraham, who's all excited. I mean, it's the voice of the Lord. God's come to him. He's going to talk. We're going to have a conversation. I'd be pretty excited. So he says, here am I. And God says, don't get too excited. Here's the whole statement. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, to the place where Jerusalem will later be built, 
and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you, period, end of discussion, no end notes, no footnotes, no time for Q&A. That's the whole statement. That's the entire conversation. And if you've never studied through the life of Abraham, there's like basically nothing in his life that prepares you for this. Nothing. I mean, you do not see this coming. And so all of a sudden, when you get to this statement, you know, you read it and it's just jarring, it's startling, it's stunning, and it's like, it's mortifying. Frankly, it's horrific. And and what you want to do is to jump somehow into the Bible and get between God and this man Abraham, this father with this son that he loves, and you want to yell at God and say, no way! You know, I mean, you've gone off the rails here. This is crazy! Or is it? Lord, you can't do this. You can't do this to any father with any son, and you certainly cannot do this to Abraham. Abraham has waited all his life for this son. If you know the story of Abraham, he took a lot of Geritol. He lived a long life. He's a 100 years old when the kid's born. His wife has been barren all of her life. She's way past menopause. She's 90. 90. When the kid is born. So what does that tell you? Well, it tells you that he's the product of a supernatural birth, doesn't it? I mean, those kind of things just don't happen. God has brought a living son out of the dead womb of a barren all of her life, way past menopause, 90-year-old woman. What is that when he brings life out of death, by the way? It's Easter. It's resurrection. And it was a supernatural birth that brought these two parents who had waited so long and who had suffered so much, such great joy, that it went back and erased all of the sorrow and all of the pain and all of the doctor's visits and all of the specialists and all of the disappointments that they had been suffering through for decades upon decades upon decades. It swallowed it up in joy and laughter. And we know that because they named the boy Isaac, which means laughter. But it's bigger than that because Isaac is also the son of promise. He's the hope of the world. And and I say that because God, before his birth, came to Abraham and said, hey, listen, I'm going to give you a son, and here's the deal. Through the lineage of that son, through the genealogy of that son, through the children that he has, and then the children that they have, and the children then that they have, and so forth, many generations down the road, I'm going to bring forth a Savior who will live, die, be buried, and rise again from the dead for the sins of his people. And at this point in the story of Abraham and Isaac, well, Isaac's about 15 or 16 years old. He's never been married. He has no children. So if we kill him, what happens to the Savior of the world then? I mean, there's a little bit hanging in the balance when you come to this statement. And yet, here it is again after these things. God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and Abraham said, because he's excited, the Lord's speaking, here am I. And the Lord said, eh, just have a seat. Take your son your only son, Isaac, the one who through the joy of his birth swallowed up all of your pain and whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, this place where Jerusalem will much later be built, and offer him there as a burnt offering (laughs) on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Period. End of discussion. No end note, no footnote, no Q&A. And I think it's important to stop here in the story and to say, you know what? 
Abraham is not struggling with whether or not he has heard the voice of the Lord. God has spoken and he knows it. And he has a full and complete understanding of exactly what it is that God has asked him to do. There's no ambiguity here. He knows what a burnt offering involves. He knows that it typically involves a lamb. God has ordained from the beginning that the blood of an innocent lamb, spotless lamb, be shed to cover over the sins of, well, you know, the guilty. He knows that it involves a cut throat. They would cut the throat of the sacrifice. I know you have lunch plans. Just hang with me. It's going to be a while. They would pour out its blood, representing its life unto its death. It gives its life fully. It involves fire. The body is consumed in flame. Abraham knows God has spoken. Abraham knows exactly what it is God wants him to do. And so then the only question is, all right, now what is Abraham going to do? And we find our answer in verse 3. It says, so Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and fled from the Lord as fast as he could because this is the stuff of crazy people. Or is it instead the stuff of faith, of of life, of light, of hope. Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And this is so powerful. It says, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. Why in the world would he do that? I mean, he's going to have to travel. We'll see a few days. So why do you carry the wood? I mean, you know, you just, I don't know, cut it there or whatever. He knows that a burnt offering will require wood. He knows, generally speaking, the region of land that he's going to go to. He doesn't know the exact location that God's going to show him upon which he will then sacrifice his son, and he doesn't know if enough wood or any wood is going to be there when he arrives at that location, and there is going to be absolutely nothing to prevent him from obediently sacrificing his son to the Lord. He cuts the wood and brings it in advance like a good Boy Scout so that there's no way and nothing standing between him and obedience. So you need to process that because the reality is that Isaac, his son, his only son, the one whom he loves, is dead to him as soon as God comes to him and says, go to Moriah and sacrifice him there. Oh, he's walking around still, but he's dead to the father. How long is he dead to the father? Well, it says, and Abraham cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And then we read that on the third day, the son is a walking dead man from the perspective of his father for three days. Fascinating. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar and his gut wrenched and his stomach turned. And he walked over to the bushes to throw up what very little he was able to keep down in the preceding three days. Don't miss the heart of the Father in this, guys. Get in His sandals for a minute and realize that He represents another Father, one who is much greater and with a far greater Son. And then Abraham said to his young man, or men with a cracking voice and tears in his eyes, and don't miss this, he says, stay here with the donkey, you two, and I and the boy will go over there and worship, and then I'll come back alone. No? No? It's a pivotal statement. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship, and we is the idea. We'll worship, and then we, together, will come again to you. Of course, I'll be looking like this. My son will be in the fancy urn that I brought just for this occasion, because if you missed it, 
burnt offerings involve typically a lamb, a cutthroat, spilled blood, shed life, innocent for the guilty, and consumption in flame. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, just as you see us now, we're going to go worship. And just as you see us now, we're going to come back to you again. How can he say that? He can only say that through faith and resurrection. You see, Abraham's heart is trained to look for resurrection. He's already seen it in the birth of his son. God brought forth a living son out of the dead womb of his wife. And Abraham then goes to do this sacrifice, believing that God will raise his son up from the dead yet again. That is to say, he will perform the sacrifice and the Lord will raise Isaac up from the ashes and yet fulfill all of the promises that he's made to Abraham that are to come through this boy, including the salvation of the world. That's his reasoning. That's how he comforts himself. And so Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the boy are going to go and worship and then we're going to come back again together with you and and to you. And just as you see us now, this is the way we're going to return. And then take notice of what Abraham does. It says that Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it where? On his son. Isaac's going to carry the wood up the hill upon which he will be sacrificed. Man, this sounds familiar. Now, why do you suppose he puts it on his son? Because Abraham, Geritol and all, is still about 115 years old. Isaac, 15, 16. So who do you think stronger? Who do you think's faster? Who has greater endurance? You know, like in a long-distance run? Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac. And Abraham the father took in his hand the instruments of death, the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father and Abraham, again through a cracking voice, looking away with tears streaming down his face so his son won't see, with far less enthusiasm than the last time he said this. He says, here am I, my son. And Isaac asks the obvious question. Isaac says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? Where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that Isaac also knows what a burnt offering involves. Typically, a lamb, a cutthroat, spilled blood, shed life, consumption, and the fire. And it tells you that he doesn't know that he's going to be the lamb. The son of the father will be the lamb. Fascinating. So Abraham, after stopping to throw up in the bushes again, says to Isaac, please don't miss this, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. And when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar. He collected up a bunch of uncut stones and put them together in the fashion of an altar, and then he laid the wood that his son had carried up the hill upon which his son will be sacrificed on top of the altar, and then he told Isaac who the real sacrifice is going to be, who the lamb is. And then, of course, we read that, you know, Isaac wrestled away from his old man, and no? All right, he ran like real fast away because Geritol and all, Abraham, you know, no? He enlisted in like cross country in high school and just decided to start training right now because it would be a good time for that. 
Nope. In faith, the same faith that his father has, that he will be raised up from the dead. On this, the third day, by the way, in which he has been the walking dead. And in obedience to his father, he allows his father to bind him, and he willingly lays himself down on the wood. The wood that he's carried up the hill. Verse 9, it says, when they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order on top of the altar and bound Isaac, his son, who did not run or wrestle free from him, but gave himself willingly to this and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham, with tears streaming down his face, reached out his trembling hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But, and thank God this happens, But the angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And in a choking voice, Abraham says again, here am I. And the angel said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, but not just your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a lamb caught in the thicket by its horns. Is that what it says? It doesn't say that. Lamb, 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 lamb. Behold a ram. That's a different animal. That matters. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And in doing so, he receives his son as if back from the dead, does he not? On the third day, curiously enough. And then we read, so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord has provided, because he did. He provided a lamb. No, actually, he didn't. So that's not what he names it. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. But what shall be provided? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And who is that? It's Christ. So Jesus appears to these two guys. They've quit on Him on Easter like of all days. Bad timing. They're walking away and He's like, why don't we look at this story? Let's see what this story says. But this story should train your heart to anticipate because Jesus Christ is the true son of promise and the true hope of the world. He's the true Isaac, born of a supernatural birth, by the way, yet in his case, not of a barren woman, but of a virgin, which parenthetically as a total aside explains the whole of his life. For if Jesus is really the God-man, then why are we surprised to hear that the blind see and the lame walk and, you know, the paralyzed not anymore and the dead are raised and the mute speak and the deaf hear? And I mean, wouldn't you expect that? It takes it from being crazy to expected. And how in the world could the grave hold the author of life? Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, Jesus says to them. He's the true Isaac born of a supernatural birth, announced in advance by angels to his earthly parents. The joy and delight of his father, who upon his baptism speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, in whom I take delight. He's the source of the laughter of heaven. 
And John the Baptist introduces him as what? The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So then he's the answer to Isaac's question, which remained open for some time, didn't it? Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb? Oh, God will provide a lamb for himself, my son. On the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. And it was. As Jesus, the true Isaac, took the wood of sacrifice upon himself and ascended the hill to lay down his life willingly on that wood, spill his innocent blood in behalf of us, that we might be forgiven. But the difference is he went up the hill knowing he was the lamb. And he went up the hill knowing nobody was going to call out from heaven and go, no, and spare his life. And no one did. Jesus offered his life on a hill in the region of Moriah, right outside the walls of Jerusalem. He was buried. And then on the third day, He came forth from the grave to let us know that there is light in this world. There is hope and there is life even in the midst of death. So Jesus walks all the way from Jerusalem to Emmaus with these guys, pleading with them, trying to gain their heart. And they get all the way to the city and it looks like, you know, now it's time to part. I mean, they've arrived at their destination and apparently He was going to continue on, but they persuade Him to stay with them for the night. And Luke says this, Luke 24, beginning of verse 30, he says, And when Jesus was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them, and their eyes were open. There it is. And they recognized him. See, having seen him in the Bible, now they see him for who he is. And he vanished from their sight, and then they said to one another, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the science book, the Scriptures in which there is life. And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem where they rejoined all of these other followers of Jesus who had remained, issued a few apologies, told them what happened, and then together with those people, they spent the rest of their lives enduring severe persecution, and many of them martyrdom proclaiming a Savior whom they knew for a fact to be alive and writing His gospel to all succeeding generations, including us, with their blood, so that we would know. They died that we might know that Easter is not the stuff of crazy people, guys. It's the stuff of light, hope, life, in fact, eternal life. Just as all of the Scriptures, this is just a little snippet, proclaim scriptures that call us to faith in Him. And if you have faith in Him, then you have hope. Then there is light and life. And if not, well, you know, there's no time like the present. Let's pray.